I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Welcome to Smarty Pants, the podcast of the American Scholar Magazine, sponsored by Phi Beta Kappa. I'm your host, Stephanie Pastek. Judging by my social media feeds, we are all getting really into sourdough this quarantine. Or is sourdough now passe and we're into something else? Maybe we're making furniture? So in the spirit of DIY and making things, I thought we could revisit this interview from 2018 with the archaeologist and medieval historian Alexander Langlands, who has all kinds of interesting things to say about making things, and quite possibly my favorite rant about leaf blowers yet. He's been on BBC TV shows like Edwardian Farm and Tudor Farm, which are exactly what they sound like, recreated life on an Edwardian farm and a Tudor farm, respectively. His book, Craft, An Inquiry into the Origins and True Meaning of Traditional Crafts, tracks the past few decades of his journey to get to the heart of what it means to be a craftsperson, and how this experience connects us both to the past and to our present sense of place. Alexander Langlands joins us from Swansea, Wales, to talk about what our crafts tell us about ourselves. Thanks for chatting with me. Uh, My pleasure. So I get the sense that your definition of craft is a little broader than most. Uh, you include haymaking, beekeeping, shepherding, even hedge cutting, and, and also in a sense that it's more specific. So what does craft mean for you? I mean, I'd had these ideas about craft for quite a long time, that there was this way of doing things in the past. Um, and I'd sort of kind of conjured up an idea of a lost knowledge, really. And in many ways, the original subtitle for the the book was Tales of a Lost Knowledge. Um, And then I came across this word creft, which was a word that King Alfred used. Uh, This is an English king. We're going back over a thousand years ago. Um, He's famous for defeating the Vikings. And after he defeated the Vikings, he set about then trying to educate the English people. And in his campaign for literacy amongst the well-born, he translated a number of classical documents. And um, in these classical documents, where we have words for power, knowledge and wisdom, King Alfred was using the old English word creft. So it was very clear that that word creft once meant something more than just making. It actually meant a kind of knowledge, a kind of wisdom and also a way of being as well. And of course, as soon as I clapped my eyes on this definition, I thought that's what I've been grasping at for the past sort of 10, 15 years, that crafting is about more than just making. Um, it's about a, a knowledge and a wisdom, a, a resourcefulness and an understanding. So how much of that do you think is 
lost knowledge. Because I think in America, at least, we've seen this uptick in modern handcrafts, people going back to the land, like getting serious about backyard gardens, knitting, sewing their own clothes. I mean, I might be guilty of a few of these, but, but why do you think people are reaching for these crafts now? I think the big the big thing is disconnect, and I, you know one of the things I've been really impressed about in the US is there's there's a lot of literature out about this disconnect, and and that's the kind of area within which we discuss and and, and debate craft, or at least you do in the in the states. I think we've got a bit of catching up to do over here in um, United Kingdom, but um, I, you know that disconnect is is actually about us getting a little bit tired with the meaninglessness of of mass manufacture. We live very busy lives. Uh, we increasingly live in in smaller spaces as well with population growth. Um, and I think we want to be more discerning about the way we purchase things and buy things and, and, and what we surround ourselves with. We want to reconnect with ourselves as makers. You know, that is essentially what we have evolved to do. We have evolved to make and to produce. We haven't evolved to sit in front of screens and just press buttons. So how has crafting or, or pursuing craft changed your own relationship with things? When did you first start pursuing this? Well, I, I went to study archaeology at the Institute of Archaeology in London. And I was sort of well versed, really, in archaeological method and theory and how we think about the past through their material remains. And, you know, I got to a point where I got a bit tired of excavating the remains of the past, in many ways, I wanted to see how the archaeological record was created. And I embarked on a series of journeys um, for the, the BBC, a series of programmes called Victorian Farm, Edwardian Farm, Wartime Farm, amongst others, where we were charged with taking a, a farm back to a particular historic period. Um, and part of that, though, was all about seeing how the archaeological record was created. Um, and it was kind of about seeing the archaeological record from, from both sides, if you like. So that was kind of one step in the direction of thinking through this idea of craft or craft uh, and how we respond and engage with our material environment. But I personally was working in London uh, with my girlfriend, who fortunate enough to say she's gone on to be my wife. We decided we wanted to get out of London. We rented a cottage in the middle of nowhere. It was just a stopgap, really. We were only going to be there for about a year and just, you know, just kind of detox, if you like. Um, from city life and we ended up being there for 10 years in this cottage and I just I went totally eco uh, you know I just wanted to experiment if you like with traditional ways of doing things and, and live my life that way um, and I found it there was actually it was a natural home for me I was just naturally happier I was a lot poorer has to be said <laughs> but I, <laughs> but I was a lot happier uh, uh, you know, the, the levels of contentment soared. And, and you know, and I, I, I missed those, in many ways, I missed those days. Um, but, um, but, you know, I think that's where I really started to think these, these ideas through properly. So, I mean, where do you start to learn all of this stuff? I mean, reading, I mean, first of all, like to do it today, but also to reconstruct what they were doing in Edwardian or Victorian England. I mean, I can imagine teaching myself to weave or make a basket or something, but but like I can't imagine how I would learn how to thatch a roof. Like, there's is there a YouTube tutorial for that? Uh, <laughs> well, I, what I you know what I say to everyone is roll up the sleeves and just get started. Feel the materials. In many ways, the materials will guide you at, at how they work and how they operate and. I, you know, that's the best advice I can give. Get stuck in. 
you know, there are many times when I probably should have read the manual or sought some guidance or, but I, you know, there's no better way than, than to actually just feel something, how it works. And then there's always an opportunity then to reflect, you know, self-reflection is a good thing. Don't do something and then say, this is how it was done. Uh, do something and say, this is how I did it and how I think it may have been done. I mean, in your many years then of living on the cottage and and doing everything from building a skep for your bees to thatching many different things, do you feel like you've mastered any of the traditional crafts you've tried? I mean, what does mastery of a craft really entail? Yeah, well, first and foremost, I have definitely not mastered any craft. I don't think I've <laughs> I don't think I've mastered anything in my life. I, I'm the sort of classic jack of all trades and and master of none. Um, you know, I am not. I talk a good craft. I am not. I wouldn't consider myself a crafts person. I'm interested in the kind of uh, the social logic of crafts, if you like. Um, I, there are certain crafts I really enjoy doing, and I'd like to think if I spent the time on them, I would get much better. Would I ever be a master of anything? I don't know. Um, but I, you know, very traditionally, just to have qualified within a, a craft, you would spend essentially three years under the tutorship of, of, a, of a craftsperson within your own family, within your own company. Um, and then you would then go out and work, finish your apprenticeship for four years, working with a master somewhere else. So you're looking at about seven years Okay, and uh, it's interesting that actually seven years you could do a PhD easily. You know, so we think about the way we belittle crafts uh, and belittle manual labour. Actually, very traditionally, seven years to to be an apprentice uh, plowright or a wheelwright um, or any of these crafts, um, and then to be a master—that's more, you know, more years on top of that. Right, right, and I feel like the best way to appreciate just like the sheer amount of labour that goes into something is to to do it. I took um I took a belt making class last weekend and it was hours. It was like five hours to make a very simple leather belt. And we didn't even do any of the tanning, you know, yeah. that went into making it from the animal. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's uh, just the tanning alone is 18 months, Um, you know, oh, yeah. just to t just to tan the leather up to standard. I mean, I... <laughs> I have to I have to admit I made a and I write about this in in the book about making a bee skep and I thought I'd embark on making a traditional skep I thought you know that'd be fun that'd be interesting to see how that works and then I made this sort of crazy decision that I was going to make it entirely from material sourced in my own garden um, and to make a, to make a traditional bee skep you need to you, you know you, you use long straw it's a, an old wheat variety with a very long straw you know sort of five up to six foot long stem um, and then you get that in bundles and you twist that and you bind it all up to make it sort of effectively a basket is what it is. Um, so I needed the long straw and I also needed about 200 metres worth of bramble cane. Um, I grew my own long straw, so that took the best part of 12 months. The bramble cane, sourcing that as an absolute amateur, I'm much better at it now, but as an absolute amateur, that took ages. I made the skep. Um, I then needed to make a waterproof shelter for it. To cut a long story short, I made a wicker basket, so from willow from my own garden. I thatched that, which meant growing more long straw and then had to bind that in with more bramble. It goes on and on and on. And I can honestly say that in the time it took me to make this bee skep, I could probably have built an extension on my house. <laughs> You know, so they are labours of love. Um, but, you know, that skep now sits proudly in a field over in uh, the Cotswolds and it's had bees in it since the day I put bees in it. And it's my most productive hive, not necessarily in terms of honey, but in terms of the numbers of bees and swarms that come out of it. They're obviously so happy in there. 
right? What I find so amazing about so many of the stories in your book, especially of your, you know, your personal experiences with these crafts is that um, oftentimes the more traditional way of doing something yields either exactly the same results as conventional, like modern methods, but with far less impact and and sometimes even better results. Yeah, I mean... (laughs) One of my bugbears is a leaf blower. I don't, do you, I mean, you must have those in the States, do you? Leaf blowers? Oh, yes. Yes. Oh, my God. I mean, the number of times I look, at, <laughs> I look out my office window uh, and I see someone operating a leaf blower and all they're doing is literally putting in a couple of hours of blowing leaves from one end of the car park to the other end of the car park. Uh, and uh, and they're being extremely noisy about it. Uh, and, you know, the cost of the leaf blower, the noise pollution... Um, you know, these things, if they're not petrol powered, uh, they're battery operated, which requires an enormous amount of lithium, plastic, metals, you know, the embedded carbon cost of these machines, when in fact, a broom used well with good technique, yields better results, probably requires a little bit more work, but is of course cheaper in the long run. So, you know, I think there is a tipping point we, that we'll be reaching, where actually, it is going to be cheaper to get human beings to do a job that we're currently uh, using machines to do. And I would cite growing food as one of those things. You know, at the moment, we use diesel to grow food. I think there will come a time when actually it's it's cheaper to get human beings to grow food. And I think that taps into one of the arguments that you make about this return to a circular economy where we're not just extracting and counting on endless natural resources, but rather... Uh, making something of quality and holding on to it and repairing it, maintaining it, and then, you know, passing it on to be used and then eventually just returning it to the earth. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I, I don't want to sound, sound like a hippie. I mean, I am deep down probably a bit of a hippie. <laughs> um, uh, and, you know, I am an environmentalist, but I think, you know, m- many people my generation are. I just think there's an intelligence to that mode of production, consumption, use, uh, and um, discard, there's an intelligence there that, that is dawning on us. I mean, over in this country, finally the government are recognising the problems we have with plastics. Um, you know, it, we will look back on this age um, uh, if we ever get to the future. <laughs> we will look back on this <laughs> age uh, and I think we'll write some pretty... Um, interesting histories about the way in which we we consumed about mass manufacture about profit uh, and I think we'll ask some really difficult questions of, of the society we currently live in. I want to circle back to one of the things you mentioned earlier about um, you know your experience as an archaeologist and um, one of the things that I learned from your book is that as an archaeologist so much of what you evaluate about the past has to do with what you don't find and how that's shaped our perception of the past, like wooden shepherd's crooks or natural brooms or brushes, for instance, wouldn't necessarily survive as long as like an axe head, for instance, Um, you know, which could lead us to think that our ancestors were far more violent than they actually were or that like animal husbandry was less central than hunting. Um, So how do you correct for that imbalance in the record and sort of how do you look back and, and look at the balance sheet of what you find and what you don't find and figure out like what life was really like? Uh, that's a that's an extremely interesting question and and it's one i my own research interests are moving in that direction it's a tough one because you know a lot of the study of the past is is very empirical uh, based on the facts what we have 
Um, and we tend to kind of marshal those facts in a way that actually either supports our own narrative, supports our own story. Uh, uh, you know, and sometimes at best, we just stack those facts on top of each other and, and read them back to ourselves. You know, and these are histories or archaeologies about the known. And I think increasingly, and this has been happening actually since the 1970s, uh, increasingly we're starting to think about the evidence we haven't got. Um, and we're using methods like, and I'm going to get all technical here, you know, inference the best explanation, interpolation as well. How do we fill the gaps? All of those questions I think are incredibly interesting to ask. But of course, to do so, you've got to go beyond the evidence you've got. You know, um, they must have used sticks for all manner of jobs in prehistory. You mentioned shepherd's crooks. In my book, I list a whole bunch of sticks that must have been in existence. But of course, we've lost because they rot. Uh, Unless we find them in waterlogged conditions, what we call anaerobic conditions, um, we don't find them. So like you say, the whole uh, the whole record, the whole narrative is skewed towards stone tool developments, defining societies, defining technological change, um, so on and so forth. Um, And we've got to be prepared to go beyond the evidence. Right, right. And it has huge ramifications, too, like with figuring out how advanced certain societies were and, and also looking at like the sociological implications like of of gender, for instance, because a lot of those textile or basket weaving crafts or, you know, disintegrating crafts are things that women would have practiced. Yeah, I mean, exactly. There's, I mean, there's, of course, a huge gender imbalance in the historical record um, because, you know, the overwhelming majority of documents are written by men, about men and for men. The gender divide actually is something I really struggled with in the book for a number of reasons. It's very difficult to say or to break from uh, quite traditional views of who did what within the sort of traditional farmstead, homestead. That would be a classic area where you're right about how do we deal with those aspects of past societies that we don't have evidence for. Um, so to ask you one more question, this time less about uh, your life as an archaeologist and more as your life as a as a person. Um, I really envy your existence in the countryside and the sort of back to the land ethos and this this way of really being embedded in crafts and making. But at the moment, I and I imagine many of the listeners of this podcast are stuck in a city with nary a hedgerow or bees nest in sight. So how can those of us in cities apply the principles of craft to our own lives without, you know, trying to raise a flock of sheep in the garden? Yeah, it's it's not easy. I mean, I you know, I'll confess. I um so I moved about 2 years ago to uh, what what we would call suburbia. Um and I've got a very, I've got a very big garden actually. Um but I'm sort of right on the edge of the city of Swansea. Um and and I effectively look out over suburbia. It's a new challenge. I'm starting to feel a bit more excited about it now. But if you're very much in a flat uh, and you've got effectively a window box within which to grow something, um, then you're then you're going to struggle to do the kinds of things that I, I guess I talk about in the in the um, the book. Having said that, you know, there's all sorts of volunteer schemes. Are there conservation projects near you? Um, natural conservation or conservation of historic monuments, heritage sites. Can you get involved in the local parkland? Is there a bit of scrub area in your in your city? What we sometimes call the edge lands of the city that could do with a bit of TLC. Is there some workshop space where you can start carving spoons, where you can turn pots, um, where you can get together and weave, you know, it's you know there are lots of different ways baking is one way that of course has taken off hugely in the uk 
because it's it is in itself a craft and it's it's different from everything else we do in our lives because it's us it's a surface it's some raw materials and our own hands so i understand your pain um but i think that <laughs> i think there are definitely all sorts of things you can do commit to it and like i say just roll up the sleeves and get involved <laughs> If you would like instructions for how to grow willow in your window basket for an old-fashioned bee skep, there's no better place to start than Alexander Langland's Kraft. That's Kraft with a little bit of German spit and uh, the little AE grapheme, which I learned in making this episode, is called an ash. So, Kraft. That's it for Smarty Pants. We'll be back next week with an all-new episode about books. Till then, take care and stay sharp. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.